1: This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Thursday, April 9th, 2020. From Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca, And now we're all wearing masks. And by all, I mean most actual people I see on the rare occasion I venture outside, but almost none of the people I see on TV. If the Movie ratings board can give a warning for cigarette use. Can the TV news be rated TVMA? Masklessness abounds. If we Photoshop cigarettes off of portraits of Murrow and Robert Johnson when they became stamps, can we Photoshop masks onto anyone who's depicted as unmasked? Is there a Snapchat N95 filter? Because that'd be hot. Masks are a blue state affectation, by the way, prophylactic, maybe better than affectation. There was a picture of members of the media at arm's length, really two arm's length from Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader and his whole staff behind him unmasked. Everyone in the media masked the red state affectation. It's hydroxychloroquine. Too many in the media are not covering this the right way, which is it might work, but it's too soon to tell. I've read so many stories and seen so many stories where the tone is only fools believe it will work. Bess Levin in Vanity Fair wrote, meet the ignorant cranks behind Trump's big hydroxychloroquine push. Subhead: a guy, Jared Kushner, found on Amazon, a quack, and Rudy Giuliani. What could go wrong? Well, sure, some less than credentialed individuals in the Trump administration are touting it. But then again, what other kind of officials in the Trump administration are you going to find? But this article really made it sound like only a quack would think that it could work. Here's a Washington Post headline. Trump is giving people false hope of coronavirus cures. It's all snake oil. The Intercept. Trump is talking up drug that increases chance of cardiac arrest or drug that could have some efficacy against COVID-19. True. Trump politicizes everything, but too many in the media have taken the bait on this issue. Treating his claim as if there aren't a lot of doctors actually prescribing it to patients and in some cases getting results is wrong. Obviously, we need not get ahead of the science, but Trump is going to. The correction isn't for us to get ahead of the science in the other direction those headlines, those stories do that. It is not snake oil. Trump University, that's educational snake oil. Windmills don't cause cancer. We could can say that definitively. He alone can't solve it. The caravan was not going to invade our country with diseases. But you can't say that hydroxychloroquine won't work. COVID cases have a respiratory element, there's oxygenation issues, maybe it will work with some, maybe it will work with others, maybe it won't work at all, maybe there's an element in it that can be used in other drugs. It is again too early to tell, which is what we should be saying. But if it works, I predict that Trump fans will literally be chanting at Trump rallies, hydroxychloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. I don't know if that'll be the meter, but something like that. The chemical formulation will be on red hats. You'll see that. They will say, see, we were right. The media was wrong. It will become a rallying cry. And it will not really be fair. It will only be that some in the media got ahead of the facts on the opposite side of Trump. But they did it by instinct, and not by science. On the show today, we go to you won't believe it Fargo, Fargo Rock City. We hear one member of the supposedly straight news media spreading some corona ignorance. But first, I'm joined by Slate's national correspondent Will Salatin to talk about how the outbreak will affect the race for the presidency. What will Trump's tiny bump in approval ratings, what that could mean if any of Trump's mishandling of the virus will be remembered and perhaps not fondly remembered. And how will it all play among the only voters who matter swing state independence? I tell you, it wasn't the virus that ruined the great democracy. But here's Will Salatin up next.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Will Salatan covers politics for Slate. And guess what? I work for Slate. I get to talk to him right now, right here. Hey, Will, how you doing? How you doing through all this?
2: <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's a pandemic.
1: Yes, Exactly. So let's talk about the other participant in the election. And I would say the participant that will, you know, dictate everything. The Democrats could have nominated almost anyone and we'd probably get the same result. I'm not sure what the result will be. But Donald Trump, normally when there is an incumbent presiding over the economy that Donald Trump will be presiding over, we say no chance at reelection. How might it play out differently this time?
2: Well, you know, until uh, a month or two ago, it was going to be just the opposite. The economy was amazing. And the test was going to be how big a jerk do you have to be? How vicious, how authoritarian, how offensive do you have to be to lose an election with an economy like that? And I was kind of looking forward to that. I was looking forward to, you know, the economy being good, America not getting hurt, but somehow getting rid of this guy. Now, it's going to be difficult for him. I don't know. I I hesitate to predict economic numbers this far in advance. But the latest that I am seeing is projections are the economy is not going to restart at the speed that he expects, even after we come back. It's going to be slow. You know, Trump needed everything to go right. I got to give you a warning, though, Mike. I have been wrong so many times (laughs) because I have this idea in my head that I know I shouldn't have as a political prognosticator, but I can't get rid of it. And here's the idea. If this is a terrible thing to happen, it won't happen. If it's irrational to elect this guy president of the United States, it won't happen. It does happen. It did happen. So it's possible that I'm wrong here, but I think that Donald Trump needs everything to go right. And he finally ran into something that is so bad that his manifest incompetence, which he's managed not to cause a catastrophe with it. Now he has a catastrophe. And the only way he gets out of this is if he manages to persuade people that his incompetence and the catastrophe are totally unrelated. I think that's a really difficult sell.
1: Remember tariffs? Remember John Bolton's book? Remember impeachment? Remember the strike on Iran? These were all supposed to be things that factored in, will they at all?
2: Yeah, I, I, as soon as you mentioned tariffs, I'm laughing because, sorry, what's crazy about the tariffs is even in the midst of this carnage, 1,000, 2,000 people dying every day, we're right now at the peak of the deaths, when Donald Trump gets asked about China and the coronavirus, he's constantly, every time, changing the subject to trade, to tariffs, all he wants to talk about is how Obama got ripped off by the Chinese. We're suckers, and he's going to fix it all. I cannot tell you how crazy it is that while people are dying, he keeps wanting to change the subject back to tariffs. So he's going to be very happy if we get it, back to talking about that. It's almost
1: like he wants to, you know, slap a 25% surcharge on the coronavirus, the molecule itself. That's his solution.
2: Totally. It totally. works so well. And, and-, and the hilarious, I mean, the thing about tariffs is tariffs was sort of the paradigm of an issue where Donald Trump, he just went around the world creating crises. He starts a trade war here. He starts a trade war there. And then he would back down and we would not have a terrible trade war. And he would run a victory lap. See, see we, and nothing terrible happened. He got away with this for three years. Trade was a classic example of something where he created crises, then he sort of diffused them and nothing terrible happened and he got away with it. And so the coronavirus is just the opposite of that. He'd love to get back to those kinds of debates where he made a lot of drama and nothing terrible ended up happening. But here, terrible things are happening every day. I don't know how he's going to get out from under it.
1: Yeah, I don't know how there could be any more examples of anything that will convince anyone to change their mind. And yet, if you read, oh, maybe there's a little bit of a rally around the flag and support the president effect. But apparently some people have changed their minds for the better towards Donald Trump during this crisis. Crazy. Crazy.
2: Yeah, but yeah, I, I am totally with the uh, skeptics on this. I mean, after 9 11, George W. Bush was its like 90 plus percent approval. See, George W. Bush was the opposite. A lot of presidents have been very different from Trump. People liked them. They were likable. Even if you didn't agree with them, you thought they were wrong about abortion. You thought they were wrong about war or whatever, a trickle down economics. But there was something that people liked about Ronald Reagan, about George W. Bush, so that, you know, when bad things happened, there was a lot of sympathy. With Trump, beyond his base, there's very little sympathy. So his his bump, such as it is, is pretty pathetic.
1: Historically pathetic. But list all the other bumps. I mean, there was George Bush in 9-11. There was Reagan with uh, some of his strikes on Libya, let's say. I don't know what 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 are some of the other rally-round-the-flag bumps that we've seen that have tend to been overrated. Maybe when Osama bin Laden was killed, any others that come to mind?
2: Well, I mean, mostly I, when, I, when my mind runs to this, it runs to foreign crises, something where we're attacked.
1: Yes. So my point is that when George W. Bush got on the pile and spoke in a megaphone and then attacked Afghanistan, it was supported wholeheartedly by almost everyone. He was doing the right thing. He was reacting to a crisis correctly. Barack Obama killing Osama bin Laden— he did a good job. Ronald Reagan, I guess, winning wars on small Caribbean islands. Good job. So yeah, his bump has been smaller, but it's also a bump after he did a demonstrably bad job in contrast with the other presidents.
2: Yeah. So 9-11 happens. George W. Bush gets up and says, I'm going to protect America. And then there's no more terror attacks on America for George W. Bush's two terms. And that's considered a huge success. The Republican Party says Bush kept us safe. Everybody says we Bush kept us safe, except Donald Trump. Donald Trump runs for president, 2015, 2016. He's the one who stands up and says, "Bull." You know, Donald George W. Bush kept us safe after he let 3,000 people die. You don't get to restart the counter after you let 3,000 people die. You're responsible for that. And he compared it to a baseball game. He said you give up 19 runs in the first inning, and then you say, "Oh, we did great after that." So you know, if we use Donald Trump's own standard. Then Donald Trump doesn't get to say, you know, for, OK, for a couple of months, I didn't pay attention to this virus. But then, man, did we pump out the ventilators? Man, did we get a lot of masks and tests out there? That's pretty much the game he's playing now, right? He wants you to just. Yeah, start by the way, if you March. use
1: if you use Donald Trump's own standard, Donald Trump gets to say would render him mute for the rest of time <laughs> <laughs> on everything. Yeah. But do you think this is the only thing that will matter? Do you think that his handling of this crisis will be, well, to some extent, our opinions of Trump are priced in and uh, the people who like him, like him, and the people who don't, don't. But in terms of when they look back and write the story of this election and this president, it will be corona in the first sentence, in the, maybe the first word of the first sentence.
2: Well, every time that I have said, that things will be the way they are, and that today's issue will be the one that people vote on or are talking about even a month from now. I have been wrong every time about this guy. What's different now is that there is this huge factor he can't control. So, unlike the trade wars, where Trump could just flip a switch, end the trade war, or walk away or do something else, he can't flip a switch here. So, he doesn't have the same ability to change topics. You know, you can't make the 2,000 people dying go away. But, you know, over time, we do know that from the models that you know, in a month, in a couple of months, the numbers get down to a point where it becomes a background issue. You have lingering effects in the economy. So you can sort of project that far out. But if I go to November of this year and ask, you know, is it going to be like this? Is this going to be the only thing people are talking about? My bet is yes, but I've been wrong so many times. I know, I I know. I'm
1: with you, but right. But say with the Iran strike, there were assumptions built in. Like what, obviously, one strike that concussed uh, a few dozen Americans is not going to decide the election but then you think about okay it could decide or have a huge impact on the election if there are counter strikes or a war or you just play out the next couple of consequences same with impeachment with this you don't have to you don't have to the consequences are upon us is what i'm saying will
2: yeah yeah that's true and i mean if i want to make an argument against myself here and say this one will stick the argument pretty much hinges on the the factors that Trump can't control here. I mean, if you take impeachment, he had a backstop in the the Republican control of the Senate. You take most of his Michigas and it's him creating it so he can end it. The factors here, you've got, first of all, the virus itself. I mean, this is what Tony Fauci keeps saying about the virus. It dictates the timeline. You don't. And that's something Trump isn't used to. So we have the virus timeline. It's going to take a while to wear off. Plus, We have the economic fallout of the virus we now have unemployment we have people laid off supply chains messed up it's going to take months to get that back Uh, the stock market may be delayed in getting back and then third if trump tries to shortcut this and say you know what i'm going to try to reassert control i'm going to send everybody back to work or you know and then the, the republican governors maybe do that then we can end up like you know singapore or some of these other countries or china in fact where they've gone back to work and the virus isn't all gone. The virus says, thank you very much, I'll come back now. And so he could get into another cycle of this. So there's a lot of ways that this can go wrong in ways that Trump himself can't control.
1: Yes, do you think that the statements that he made dismissing the virus talking about it'll be going away by april saying we have 15 cases but like a miracle they're all going to go away in the past he said horrible things offensive things unbelievably incorrect things but one reason they don't stick i mean they stick a little bit people have an unfavorable opinion of them but they don't stick as much as they would with the normal politicians he just keeps saying them so he dominates the ether he floods the zone pick your analogy he's like mr burns's body where all the pathogens are fighting each other and he stays alive. Is this an exception? Will those statements in this time really hang around his neck in a way that some of the other things he said that you think would sink him but didn't fail to?
2: All right. So I think I should make an argument against myself here because I have a bad habit of sanguine predictions. I think the argument that this will work out for Trump or could work out for Trump is that eventually the virus will go away and you can already see him playing on this in some of the White House briefings, the reporters have said to him, sir, you said in February, it's going to go away. It'll all go away. And Trump's response to this in the briefings has been, it is going away. It will go away. And bizarrely, he's right he's right if you extend the time frame so a lot sure. of game comes down and he's down right to the time he's frame.
1: right on a microbiology level in that if a virus kills the host it does go away could go <laughs> away by killing us all
2: right but but, but suppose that what happens yeah. here is that you know we've seen the models that by the end of may this is down By the end of june it's sort of dissipated we do manage to sort of let's let's say people other than donald trump who are competent manage to get out enough you know antibody tests and uh that we do manage to get out a containment system set up so that people are able to go back to work and we're able to isolate cases and do what they what they call containment as opposed to mitigation trump doesn't deserve credit for any of that but he'll take the credit we all know And then the economy starts back up and by November people are saying rent, you know, coronavirus was terrible You know, it knocked 20% off the gdp in the second quarter and we're like and but you know We're back on our feet and it's morning in america And the stock market having plummeted back down to below where obama left it is back up another few thousand points And people are just like man. We survived this, you know, trump got us through it That's a plausible scenario If there isn't a relapse of the virus and if the economy is moving forward, Trump doesn't have very much margin to work with, but that may be enough to get him through.
1: Yeah. You know, just a thought I had. We all know the electoral college is at best imperfect. At worst, it just skews the will of the people. But think about if there were no electoral college, if it was just a popular vote, how different his responses, America's responses would be. I mean, for every thousand people who die in New York, and it affects the opinions of New Yorkers under the current calculus, and that doesn't matter. We can make up for that with Floridians or Ohioans. But if it was just a natural vote. The more people who died and the more people who were affected, just the more people who wouldn't be voting for Donald Trump again. It would hurt him a lot more.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to design a virus to uh, protect Republicans in the election, you'd sort of pick this one, right? It comes in... You know, yeah, except for the
1: fact back. that it hurts, hurts old people.
2: Yeah, yeah. But it comes in from China, then through Europe. It comes into the cities that have international travel, the cosmopolitan areas, the blue areas. It, that's where it starts. And you could see that the Democrats, much more than Republicans, were washing their hands more, staying away from restaurants, staying away from public gatherings. So you'd think, you know, the Republicans are going to get the virus. No, because the virus seeded in these cosmopolitan areas with lots of travel. And so with the, they're the blue areas. And for that reason, Trump could sort of get away with it for a while. And then it. Not until later in the game does it start threatening cities in red areas. Even then, it's threatening cities, right? It's not threatening Louisiana. It's threatening New Orleans. It's threatening downstate New York. Let's go to Michigan, right? Michigan is an important state. If a lot of people die in Michigan, that is going to hurt Republicans in the electoral college. Where is it hurting? It's in Detroit, by and large. So again, it's blue areas everywhere, even in the red states. I think Trump's likely to face more damage from what he has said than what he has done in terms of some of these states. I'm thinking of Michigan in particular. Pence calls Gretchen Whitmer the governor of Michigan. Trump's like, I'm not going to call the woman. And he he insults by name Michigan. These are the things that politicos really understand. They hurt. They hurt you in an yeah. election if you sound like you don't care about an important state in particular. So he's going to have a lot of cleanup to do, even if the damage in Detroit isn't as bad as it might have been.
1: Will Salatan is Slate's national correspondent, which means like you, he hasn't left his home in three weeks. Thank you so much, Will. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Minnesota Governor Tim Walls issued his newest stay-at-home order. He extended it for some weeks. And this is how it was covered by Fargo, North Dakota, KVLY TV anchor Chris Berg. Breaking news tonight,
3: Minnesota Governor Tim Wallace has extended the stay-at-home order up until May 4th. May the 4th be with you, Minnesota.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good, meaning horrific times. Of course, we all misfire with a quip now and again, I am told. Let's see what the trusted anchor of Fargo's leading news station has to say about this order issued by the governor. Look, right now, with everything going on in the world,
3: you should be questioning Everything, And I mean everything, including what I'm about to say to you right now. That's the subject of tonight's point of view. I'm going to give you just two examples tonight of why you need to be questioning everything that you're seeing right now.
1: Now, okay, it seems like a weird tack for a newsman to take. Newsmen are supposed to have answers, but I'll hear them out. If I have questions about it, Chris just said that was okay. And if you have a question... I'm going to answer it. Your question might be, why is Fargo covering Minnesota? Here's the answer. If you're unfamiliar with the geography of Fargo, hugs the border of Minnesota, good percentage of the viewing audience will be in the Gopher state. So this wasn't a series of musings from one anchorman in one audience about a different audience. It was directly to the people who were watching in one state and also to the people watching in another state, North Dakota, where their governor is taking far less aggressive action than Walls did. So right off the bat, Chris Berg plays a clip of Governor Walls from March
3: 25th. If we just let this thing run its course and did nothing, um, upwards of 74,000 Minnesotans could be killed by this. Folks, he just said that 74,000, 74,000 Minnesotans could be killed.
1: That's if, you know, Minnesota did nothing. Clearly they're doing that. Well, he did say upwards of 74,000. If Minnesota did nothing, which Berg acknowledged. What didn't come to pass? They did something. But then Berg asked. But here's my question for you Is anybody asking him, how in the
3: world did you come up with 74,000? Where did you get that number from? And who determined what data was actually going into the model to say, hey, we can lose 74,000,
1: 74,000 Minnesotans? They didn't have to, because in that press conference and at other times, Wall cited modeling from the University of Minnesota. And it was a worst case scenario, granted. Burke does acknowledge all of that, but he goes on to asking the next big question.
3: Who funds the University of Minnesota? Who paid for this model that's creating all this data? That would be you, the taxpayers, by the way. How much did this model cost? It's being created out of the University of Minnesota. And also, why isn't Minnesota using the same models or the IHME models like the rest of the country's using, including the White House? especially when they're making executive stay-at-home
1: order decisions that are really decimating. How much does the model cost? It's like the price of a graphing calculator, right? However much electricity it takes to power a laptop or two. Does uh, does Berg think it's like a model airplane or a Model T Ford? Why is the governor of Minnesota using a model from the University of Minnesota? That's the big question. Seems kind of obvious to me. So it can focus on Minnesota, And by the way, why aren't they using the IMHE model? Well, if they were, they could find out that the worst case for Minnesota at the time, March 25th, that Berg was talking about, was in the thousands. It has since come down. Berg once again returned to the cost of the model. The problem is we don't know. You're the taxpayer paying for this model. And if taxpayers die of corona, their estates will be paying for the model. Which sounds, I guess, like it's this fairly expensive model. Does it run on plutonium? You know, if it has an internal combustion engine, it's pretty cheap given the price of gasoline. To be fair to Berg, he does go on to make the point that we should know what the inputs are and it's the public's right to know and mentions that the station has filed a FOIA request. Good. I'm all for that. But the pose of just asking questions and the implication of the answers are not forthcoming or might shock you, it's really not the best use of one's platform as a local news anchor. For instance, instead of the just asking questions mode, Berg could have brought his viewers answers. They're out there. Like this podcast I found within five minutes of sleuthing.
3: I'm John Finnegan, Dean of the U of M School of Public Health. And we thought that since these numbers inform public policy and therefore have a significant impact on our daily lives during this pandemic, that it would be important to explore how this modeling works.
1: And while the podcast doesn't exactly lay out the formula, they don't tell the audience, now wait, the suspected are not two times in a population center of less than 900 people or 2.4 times in a population center of 2,000, the podcast does offer useful information. Then was given by the lead inquisitor slash anchorman, Chris Berg. For instance, this was professor of health policy and management at the U of M, Eva Enns.
0: So I I wouldn't be too wedded to specific numbers uh, because those numbers will change and we need the flexibility to be able to revise those estimates and update our understanding of the virus of healthcare context that we live in that is specific to our country or ideally our state. Uh, But in terms of any specific numbers, I would uh, caution getting too attached to any of them. It is clear,
1: and it's been all over the coverage, good faith coverage that is, Uh, it was in the Star Tribune, it was uh, in statements by the public health officials themselves and from Walls' own mouth, that the raw numbers were never meant to be precise, were never meant to be immutable. In fact, the purpose isn't to actually try to put a number on who could die, it's to note the difference between the number who would die with no mitigation, with some mitigation, and with a lot of mitigation. Because if the inputs are consistent, you could run a decent model That tells you the effect of doing a little, a lot, or nothing. And so that's what they did. And that is why Minnesota decided to shut things down in a fairly aggressive way. And it might also be, I would venture to say, it probably is why Minnesota only has a predicted death toll in the hundreds, not in the thousands now. So later on in this extended segment, nine minutes on the local news, Berg invited on a Minnesota doctor who's also a state senator, Republican state senator, Scott Jensen. And he discussed guidelines for diagnosing COVID-19 on death certificates. Now here was the example that Jensen used. There was a woman who came to his office who died of pneumonia. Then it was discovered that her son, who she was exposed to, actually had coronavirus. Here's the description. Sometime after she came down with pneumonia,
3: we learned that she had been exposed to her son who had no symptoms, but later on was identified with COVID-19, that it would be appropriate to diagnose on the death certificate COVID-19.
1: Berg jumped in.
3: I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I, my heart is sinking right now as you're telling me this. You're you're a doctor. Why in the world would they be sending you out information to fill out death certificates, whether the person's been diagnosed with COVID-19 or not, but then to say in the death certificate, this person's death was caused by COVID-19. That, that does not sound right to me.
1: Well, granted, it would be better if we had enough testing to accurately determine who has it. But the risks of an undercount or underdocumentation seem to me to be more than the risks of ignoring the very real possibility that COVID-19 is the cause of death, especially in this case, the cause of death of an elderly patient who developed respiratory problems after being exposed to a known carrier of the coronavirus. As a journalist, I would have Ask questions to public health officials, or maybe just do some research like I did as a journalist, wherein I might find that the National Vital Statistics System, which is part of the CDC, provided new guidance for death certificates, and it said it should list coronavirus if it was assumed to cause or contribute to death, and that the state of Minnesota follows the lead of that federal agency. But Berg chose a different tact. He didn't find those answers and give them to the public. No, he just asked some more questions to his audience after first concluding that there was an active campaign of misinformation going on. But I wanna ask you this, why do you, why do you at home think
3: they're inflating the number of COVID deaths in Minnesota? I've been asking a lot of people that question today. One of the things that we've also been talking about is hey, do states maybe get more federal dollars if they label a death as a COVID death now? Because again, this is
1: an emergency. Well, I don't know, Chris. Maybe you should come to your viewers with answers to this question rather than free-floating conspiracies and accusations unmoored to actual facts. In a time of tremendous sensitivity, by the way, are you trying out for Fox News? Just asking questions. Do your personal political leanings have any influence on what you're communicating to the public? Again, more questions. Could you be dangerously misinforming the audience with a segment And also with a tweet about this segment that asks, why is Minnesota inflating COVID-19 death numbers? It's a good question, right? And here's the final question I have. Will there be any consequences for getting your conclusions before you get your facts and pretending it's all in the guise of a quest for truth? And that's it for today's show. And that's it for all tomorrows evermore for Priscilla Lobby. She is leaving us. She was a great, though short, addition to the GIST team. By short, I mean, of course, length of service, only that. She'll be going to work at another news organization. I can't disclose exactly which news organization. It does rhyme with C. Hen Hen. Margaret Kelly, she's here to help, but why? Did she orchestrate Priscilla's ouster to ease her way? To the GIST's producing staff, just asking questions. Daniel Schrader is the GIST's producer. Does he purposely induce me to say those wacky things at the end of the show to embarrass me? Oh no, Mike, they're just colorful, the audience likes them. Is it a campaign to undermine me? Just asking questions. The GIST. Did you know that the KVLY Fargo Tower was one of the tallest structures in the world and is currently... The tallest structure in the Western Hemisphere. Just asking. Did you know? You did know that. You're kind of a weirdo. Um, per de Peru, and thanks for listening.